Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, and welcome to Transatlantic Cooperation in the COVID-19 era and beyond. We're thrilled to have you with us today. Before our program begins, we'd like to share some tips for optimizing your experience. First, we will be sharing the recording of today's program with you following the event. So if you want to watch it again, share it with a friend, or jot something down from the slides, you'll have the recording to do so. Next, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Please submit your questions throughout this event in the questions box on your screen. Be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, or where you're tuning in from. We'll get to as many of your questions as possible later on. Finally, your microphone is muted for this event. I now invite Sharice Trump to turn on her webcam and take it away. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sharice Trump, the Associate Director of Coalition Relations here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm looking forward to a great discussion on the importance of the transatlantic cooperation in the time of COVID and beyond with the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs and Steph Block and Heritage's Niall Gardner. I would like to now invite Niall and Minister Block to turn on their cameras. Before I have Niall start us off and introduce Minister Block, I would like to provide a brief introduction for Niall himself. In addition to being director of Heritage's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, Niall is a leading authority on Brexit and is a prominent expert on U.S.-British relations, U.S. foreign policy, and the transatlantic alliance. In fact, before rejoining Heritage, he served as foreign policy aide to Lady Thatcher, and his work for Lady Thatcher helped shape her foreign policy vision. I'm sure you've seen him either testifying before Congress on foreign policy issues or providing analysis for various U.S. and international television networks. So with that, I'll hand it over to Niall. Thank you very much, Cherise, uh, uh, and good morning to everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Steph Bloch, the Foreign Minister of the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands is a key U.S. ally in Europe, and relations between our two nations stretch back to 1782. Nearly 625,000 American jobs depend on the U.S.-Dutch economic relationship, and the Netherlands is the third largest foreign investor in the United States. There are 850 Dutch companies operating in the U.S. today. On the world stage, American and Dutch forces stand shoulder to shoulder together within the NATO alliance, and the security partnership between Washington and The Hague is strong and robust. Steph Bloch has served as Dutch foreign minister since March 2018 and was previously minister of security and justice and minister for housing and the central government sector. Mr. Block was a member of the House of Representatives for the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy for over a decade and was also his party's parliamentary leader from 2010 to 2012. He is a prominent voice on transatlantic issues and a key friend of the United States across the Atlantic. I would now like to invite Mr. Block to deliver his remarks on transatlantic cooperation in the COVID-19 era and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Niall, for your kind introduction. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be speaking to you today, and I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation for allowing me the opportunity. I'm speaking to you from far away, of course, but uh, thankfully in the knowledge that distance is only a relative concept. Even though there is an immense ocean between our continents, the video connection shows once more that such distances are easily bridged. 
I'd like to share my thoughts with you on the relationship between the US, the Netherlands, and Europe. And I'll get right to the point. Preserving a successful transatlantic community is a vital US interest. And this statement is not my own, although I would certainly subscribe to it, but uh, perhaps it rings a bell. And that's because it comes from the report co-authored by, uh, by you now. How and why American conservatives must fight for the future of the transatlantic community. A fascinating report. And I'm not just saying that because its title reflects my own view of the world and its future. I'm saying it because the report reflects a unique, strong and durable relationship we have, your country and mine. And in a broader sense, your country and Europe. A relationship in which it's not a problem if we disagree from time to time. Because when all is said and done, we always manage to find common ground. Because we've known each other for so long and been through so much together, we are friends who share the same values. That relationship is acknowledged in the report, which says, conservatives believe in, in inalienable individual rights. And this belief grows on a common legacy from within the transatlantic community a heritage that helped forge America's conception of itself. And that long-standing relationship is described superbly in this report. And some of its conclusions I agree with, others I don't at all, and that's fine, because I endorse its main message 100%. We have been friends from the beginning, and at this crucial time, we need each other badly once again. I'm not the kind of person who wants to get bogged down in the past. That's not my nature, but I am aware of how our legacy, our heritage, influences our decisions today, and how we can learn from it and use it to our advantage. I'm not just talking about our common legacy, though I will come back to that later. I'm also referring to the lessons learned on a personal level. The legacy of experiences that you build up and carry with you in your life. I have a background in incontrovertible results as a former manager at the Dutch bank ABM AMRO and from my time as a housing minister. Whether it was a business strategy or measures for the housing market, the goals were always specific and results measurable and explainable. The background has shaped my approach as Minister of Foreign Affairs. In international affairs, it is crucial to make clear what the benefits are that can be difficult as it is not always immediately evident what's going well, but the shortcomings are often crystal clear. And that brings me to a number of examples that will be on your radar too. Russia is increasingly violating rules and norms as it tries to expand its influence in the direction of Europe. And it is trying to sow discord in the EU and NATO by playing power games and interfering in democratic processes. The shocking poisoning of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny is the latest example of Russian violation of international norms. Then there's China, which portrays itself as a champion of multilateralism and international cooperation, but doesn't always see these things from the same perspective as you and I. It may want global governance, but not in its backyard. China was happy to become a member of the World Trade Organization but since then, it has opened up its market only to a limited degree. But key issues do not revolve around individual countries or issues. 
the heart of the matter is the challenges we both face at the moment. The multilateral system and the rules-based international order are under pressure that has consequences. It leads to stagnation and frustration. The world has become less safe. And this is a direct result of violations of disarmament agreements. And in this new world, might is increasingly rife. What may be the worst of all is that horrific crimes about which we once said never again suddenly seem possible again. Because countries are flouting rules. And as a result, for instance, the use of poison gas is no longer a universal taboo. So we share the same frustrations about the fact that international trade rules are no longer working properly or cannot be enforced. About the lack of transparency in international public health cooperation. About the unfair distribution of leadership positions at international organizations. If something isn't working properly, there seems to be only one solution now, nowadays. Pull the plug out. But I'm convinced that that is not the path we should be taking. With Rome, puts you on the outside looking in, with no say on how to solve the problem we all face. In terms of quantifiable results, the yield is zero. So international cooperation benefits us all, including the US, even if at first glance you might not think so. And that is not just a catchphrase. Studies have proven it. With quantifiable results. For example, the Rand Corporation's 2018 report shows um, that on the cost and benefits of multilateral organizations for the United States, the benefits are clear. Allow me to mention the report's five conclusions. The post-war order offers significant value to US interests and objectives, specifically in quantifiable and return on investment terms. The order contributes to outcomes with measurable value and appears to have strongly positive cost-benefit The post-war order represents a leading US competitive autonomy. And if the United States want to continue to lead globally, some form of order is vital. And finally, a functioning multilateral order will be essential to deal with emerging security and economic issues. These conclusions are underpinned by figures. The annual costs of the United States global role are estimated at 160 to 260 billion dollars. This includes contributions to international organizations, diplomatic budget, and foreign assistance. The economic benefits are significant. Post-war tariff reductions lead to a 2 to 5% difference in GDP growth rate and more than 300,000 extra jobs. And the report cites more figures. In the post-war era, global per capita GDP has increased from 2,000 to over $10,000. But in the US, it grew from 15,000 to over $50,000. This year can be attributed to many factors, but it would never have happened without the institutions, rules and norms that make our world order. And then there is the US participation in security alliances, which generates $490 billion a year in GDP. The report also discusses how a weakened multilateral order could, in a crisis, 
Some enterprise that would vastly overshadow the cost of US contribution to international organizations, such as UN Jews and IMF contribution. I could go on. These figures show that it is worth every dime to maintain and reform the system we've built since World War II. We need that system. That is not a conservative opinion nor a liberal one. It is common sense, backed up by research. And in that system, we need each other, Europe and America, the Netherlands and America. Because we share the same democratic values or heritage. Because we have similar views on what fair trade means. And especially because our shared values and views are facing stiff competition on the world stage. It is our open model versus the closed model that some other countries have which allows them to profit from our open economies while limiting access to their own markets. Our democratic model, which cherishes values like freedom, human rights, democracy, and rule of law, also contrasts with autocratic regimes. These autocratic systems, which do not embrace the same values, are being presented as alternatives to ours. For many years, we could take our way of life and our values for granted, but no longer. So now we need to join forces so that future generations can continue to say, this is our heritage. This is what we stand for and what binds us together. Our strength lies in unity. And this too is more than a catchphrase. We can measure the value of our combined strength in numbers. Together, the European Union and the United States account for almost half of the global GDP. Our likely transatlantic trade amounts to no less than $1.3 trillion a year. The US has three times as much investment in the EU as in all of Asia. And EU investment in the US is eight times higher than our combined investments in India and China. Not to mention our combined 800 million people who share the same values. And the Netherlands may not only be a dot on the world map, but we are also, as you mentioned now, among the top five investors in the US. More than 800 Dutch companies do business in your country. And our trade and investment generate more than 800,000 US jobs. And if it's up to us, this will grow to be 1 million jobs. Moreover, the Netherlands is the world's second largest agriculture exporter second only to the US. Today, the coronavirus crisis is showing precisely how advantageous our relationship is for both of us. We are helping each other ensure the safety of our people. For example, many American and Dutch cruise ship tourists were safely brought to shore and taken home when these luxury liners turned into floating prisons. We are helping each other limit the damage to our economies. And, miracle of miracles, We've succeeded in keeping the disruption to our trade flows to a minimum. We are helping each other ensure a better future by searching for solutions to this pandemic, which is still affecting us. For example, we're working together on developing vaccines. The US government and Johnson & Johnson have jointly invested a billion dollars in vaccine development. Almost half of this money is going to Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Janssen, which is based in Leiden in the Netherlands. 
we have been friends from the beginning and now we're helping each other at this crucial zero out. This moment is crucial because Corona is proving catalyst in some key trends. Because we are seeing an explosive increase in disinformation. Because face masks are being used as tools of public diplomacy. And because our dependence on other countries for strategic goods is becoming painfully clear. So now is the time to engage jointly in dialogue with like-minded countries to preserve our open economies. And now is the time to work together to safeguard our interests and defend our positions. The more we work together, the sooner our closely linked economies will recover from this crisis. And the more we work together, the more we can set the tone for health standards and consumer safety. So we can shape a world we believe in and benefit from. A coordinated response will be much more effective in imposing and enforcing strict rules. And it's calls for leadership from the US, from United Europe, together as equal partners. This is the only way we can safeguard our economic and other interests. And differences of opinion come with the territory. Sometimes we have major disagreements and emotions run high. As long as we keep our shared interests and values in mind, we should be able to overcome our differences. For example, the Netherlands does not support US extraterritorial sanctions that affect European companies. Sanctions like these divide transatlantic partners instead of uniting them. And countries like Russia only benefit from it. But trade is not our only shared interest. We also have a common future when it comes to security. We, the US and the Netherlands, are prepared to defend ourselves together with our 28 other NATO allies as a united force. After all, a secure Europe is a vital American interest because Europe is an island of stability in an unstable world. When it comes to security, unity pays dividends. We demonstrated this when we jointly sent Russia a forceful political message in 2014 when we jointly impose sanctions against Russian entities in response to Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. Experience has also made clear that divisions between us are not helpful. Every time we pull back from international commitments, Russia and China take steps forward. Every withdrawal from an international agreement moves us further away from the free, fair and democratic world we want. Leaving international organizations gives Russia, China, and others more opportunities to expand their influence and maneuvering room and increase their control over those organizations. It also gives them a chance to promote their preferred narrative, that of a divided West. So in this respect too, we need to act in a united way to ensure a stronger world order. Based on the treaty structure we built after World War II, so as to ensure that the Third World War with total destruction would never take place. And in this connection, I would like to compliment the US on the first round of talks you just had with Russia in the New START Treaty. We fully support the American call to involve China in this process as well. And I recently discussed this myself with the Chinese. But we shouldn't throw the baby out with bathwater. The same lesson applies here that I mentioned earlier. If the US pulls back, other countries will push forward. 
and that makes the world's foundations even shaky. It's clear to me that our analysis of today's global problems overlap considerably. However, sharing a well-thought-out analysis will not in itself solve our problems. Unity in action will, as equal partners. We need to act in concert and enhance our strategic resilience. That's the only way for us to hold onto our economic headstone. We also have to be tough in tackling unfair competition and government subsidy and enforce a level economic playing field. We have to stand firm for democracy and human rights in the world. And we have to preserve what we work together to build. When countries try to undermine international partnerships from within, we need to work from within to make organizations like UN stronger. Reforms are hard, but they are possible. We saw this last year when, at an extraordinary congress of the Universal Postal Union, we managed to reach a compromise on the system of remuneration rates. The rates are still lopsided, but they can only be fixed by working from within, together with people. After all, you can only make a change from within, not from the bleachers. The baseball player who hits his team because he doesn't like the way his teammates are playing, is just going to sit there helplessly, grinding his teeth. And if he decides to start a new league, his chances of success are going to be slim, since hardly anyone is likely to join him. I agree with what Babe Ruth said. The way a team plays as a whole determines its success. You may have the greatest bunch of individual stars in the world, but if they don't play together, the club won't be worth the time. And that's actually also my message to you today. Let's play ball from both sides of the Atlantic together. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your excellent, very uh, timely remarks, uh, Foreign Minister. Uh, and certainly um, there is much that unites the United States and its European allies on so many issues. Uh, and uh, the, I think the issues that unite us are greater than the issues that, that divide us. Uh, and so I thank you very much for your, for your remarks and also for your very kind uh, words about the Heritage Foundation's uh, paper calling for transatlantic uh, cooperation in terms of post-COVID-19 economic uh, recovery. And uh, I'd now like to ask you a, a few uh, questions, including um, some from our audience. Uh, and you mentioned in your, in your speech the need for uh, the United States and, uh, and for Europe to to do more in terms of standing up to both uh, Russia and, and China. And so a couple of follow-up questions uh, on this, this area, uh, starting with, uh, with China. Uh, and uh, attitudes towards uh, China have hardened across, out, across Europe, actually, since the outbreak of COVID-19 uh, and China's suppression of freedom in Hong Kong. Uh, one area that has come under increased scrutiny recently is Chinese investment in Europe, particularly uh, stakes and acquisitions in high-tech companies and strategic infrastructure. Is this something your government is concerned about uh, in the Netherlands? And what more should the United States and its European allies be doing to, to challenge uh, China on the world stage? That's, that's a very relevant question. Actually, the, the risk of uh, both economic dependency and the threat of um, an industrial espionage, uh, intellectual property, was on the agenda in the Netherlands also before the, the pandemic broke out. 
and um, that was because our uh, business community, but, but also the uh, public um, reports of our intelligence agency made clear that there uh, are reasons to worry about that. So we engaged with our business community, civil society, with the dual message that we believe it is in our interest to engage with China. China has 1.4 billion inhabitants, uh, tremendous economic development, uh, is on a number of fields willing to cooperate, but at the same time, a player that gives reasons for worry and criticism. There we have to be clear towards China. Chinese minister visited um, the Netherlands two weeks ago and a number of other Euro European countries. And I was very glad that our common message was, we want to continue to engage with China. We want our businesses, our universities to, to do business with you, but you have to make it possible. Because if they should be worried about intellectual property, or if they have to explain uh, to the public at home or to their consumer, customers that their products may be produced in Xinjiang, uh, with, with, with people that are, are, as a matter of fact, uh, enslaved laborers, they can and will not do business with you. But if we can engage in stepping together forward to a fair business playing field, where investments are protected, where uh, human rights are respected, then we can, to the benefit of both, work together. And actually, the, the, the choice is yours, my, my dear Chinese colleague. I, I know that yesterday uh, the, the message was the same during the, the summit. It was also a video conference between uh, European leaders and Xi Jinping. That means we will use this, this two-pronged approach willingness to engage and being very critical about what's wrong, warning our business community, our universities, be careful, is for me the logical way forward. Thank you very much, uh, Foreign Minister. And a, uh, just another China-related uh, question that we have uh, concerning uh, Huawei and, and 5G, uh, a big transatlantic issue uh, today. And the Trump administration has placed a focus on the importance of secure next generation telecommunications networks, especially for key US allies. Uh, there appears to have been a change in trajectory of European thinking on 5G over the last few months. And both France and, and the UK are actively seeking to remove Chinese equipment from the networks. And six European countries thus far have signed a 5G security declaration with the United States. Can you tell us where Dutch thinking is on the question of or the future of Huawei and, and 5G? Um, there, there again, the, the discussion in, in Netherlands started um, a couple of years ago. Um, Netherlands is one of the main internet nodes on the European continent. And uh, our, our business and, and uh, general public are, are very well connected, which is of course a great benefit, but also makes us vulnerable to, to cyber threats. With regard to 5G, we introduced um, a law that obliges uh, telecom operators to ascertain that their providers pose no security risks. So we don't mention countries, we don't mention companies, 
but we oblige any operator in the Netherlands to ensure that there are no risks. And um, that's not only a law in writing, that's also an obligation that we control. And that uh, is currently now the rollout of the 5G equipment is, is in its upstart phase, is implemented. And um, this, is, this law, we actually feel um, well against uh, cyber threats uh, emanating from any country. Thank you, Foreign Minister. And uh, a, a couple of questions now actually on, on the Russian front in terms of standing up to the Russian bear. And Russia, of course, remains a, a, an immense threat to European uh, security. Uh, and Russia, over the past decade, has carried out a number of assassinations and assassination attempts against uh, political dissidents, uh, many on European soil, which in the case of the Salisbury poisoning in 2018 cost the lives of civilians as well. And most recently, as, as you referenced in your remarks earlier, uh, the Kremlin has been accused of poisoning a, a Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, using the nerve agent uh, Novichok. Uh, is Europe, in your opinion, doing enough to respond to this campaign of aggression from Moscow? And what more needs to be done? After the Skripal attack, I think Europe showed the results needed. We all took diplomatic measures. The same happened at the moment uh, we here in the Netherlands caught two Russian spies red-handed at the OPCW headquarters that are located here in The Hague, and they were trying uh, to interfere in, in their internet network. With regard to uh, both the, uh, the Russian influence in, in Belarus and the, um, the use of, of a nerve agents uh, towards Navalny, um, we should um, uh, proceed uh, carefully, but in a determined way. With regard to the poisoning of, of Mr. Navalny, the German doctors have made clear that they found traces of um, forbidden substance. Chemical warfare is, is forbidden. And the logical way forward for me is to now use the, the OPCW procedures to uh, establish uh, that it took indeed uh, place and try to find out who was behind it. And then I'm completely open to the measures that, that should be taken after such a violation of, of an international treaty. Uh, with regard to the situation in Belarus, the European Union has announced that it is um, planning to apply sanctions towards uh, high-ranking officials that meddled in the, in the unfair elections that are responsible for violence against in, uh, innocent um, protesters. Um, actually, I'm, I'm not satisfied because it takes so long and so long to implement sanctions. But I will continue to push for sanctions there because we should make clear that the people of Belarus deserve free and fair elections and they deserve support from every free, free country in the world. Thank you for your very robust uh, statements, uh, Foreign Minister. And uh, a further question on uh, Russia regarding Russian election interference. Uh, Russia has been aggressively targeting Western elections in a bid to influence outcomes and undermine the public's faith in democratic institutions. 
the Netherlands will be holding a general election scheduled for March 21st, I believe, next year. Uh, what steps are you taking to prepare for cyber attacks and influence operations targeting your elections? Um, we are taking specific measure, measures, but, but one step back, I, I firmly believe that as long as you have a, a diverse media and well-educated people, that is the best protection against any disinformation. I'm, 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 I'm very reluctant against any government control in, in a country that prides itself to be one of, one of the founding countries with regard to free press and freedom of speech. At the same time, you're completely right that um, we also have um, our, our worries and, and, and even some experiences of, of Russian mingling in, in Dutch media and Dutch political deeds. Um, as we, we have a, a strong tradition of, of cyber vigilance and um, one uh, EU instrument that I'm actually proud of, we have a sanction um, system for uh, cyber crime that uh, has recently been used against some uh, Russian national and two Chinese nationals. This was a uh, combined UK Dutch initiative. We are also able to sanction uh, persons involved um, personally and by, by uh, blocking their assets in the EU and then banning their entry to the EU. Thank you very much. And certainly, this is going to be, uh, you know, a big, a big issue, I think, for Europe in in the uh, the years to come. Uh, and uh, we cannot, in any way, underestimate the threat that Russia poses to uh, to European democracies. Uh, and a related question on NATO. Uh, NATO is currently in the midst of a period of reflection, and there are different views within the alliance about key issues such as where the alliance's focus should be: Russia, the Mediterranean terrorism or China, for example. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has even remarked that NATO is on its uh, deathbed, as he, as he calls it. What are your views on the future of the NATO alliance and what needs to be done to strengthen NATO? I am a staunch supporter of NATO. I have no deathbed insights for NATO. Um, I not only am very proud of, of our common history guaranteeing 75 years of peace on the European continent, I also think that the cooperation of, of, of democratic countries that respect the rule of law is in itself an enormous value. If you look at the world map, how, how many countries can really say we are democracies, we respect the rule of law? That in itself makes us of enormous importance for me to cooperate with, with our friends and allies on the other side of the of the Atlantic. Of course, threats are changing and um, we should also realize that this, the threats emanating from, from terrorism, uh, from maybe uh, China, still cur currently concentrating on, on its own region, uh, but as, as you already mentioned, Russia is very much back. Of course, I have to confess that the Netherlands is not uh, not yet paying its its two percent. Uh, we we have uh, been increasing our our contribution, 
but uh, I consider it a um, uh, duty for us to, to improve our financial contribution. And, and I, I was very glad to hear in your opening remarks um, refer, your referral to the fact that the Dutch and, and US soldiers are standing shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq. We worked very um, intensively together to fight and defeat ISIS in, uh, in Syria. Uh, that really has shown the, the great importance of our military cooperation and NATO cooperation. Thank you very much for that response, and we're very grateful to uh, the the sacrifices and, and bravery uh, of uh, Dutch forces who have fought shoulder to shoulder with with the U.S. allies in the fight against uh, Islamist uh, terrorists, including against against ISIS, uh, and and certainly the world is a far safer place uh, with a strong NATO uh, alliance in place uh, and it's certainly our view here here at heritage that the nato alliance is is in fact growing uh, stronger rather than rather than weaker uh, and uh, thank you very much for your for your comments on nato um, we have a, a few minutes remaining for uh, for questions and um, i'd like to ask you a question about uh, about brexit and also about uh, us eu trade but firstly on on brexit uh, once again brexit is moving to the fore in in Europe, uh, the United Kingdom and the European Union remain engaged in detailed and at times uh, tense negotiations over a trade deal with the UK, leaving the single market and customs union on December 31st. Uh, there are now fears over a trade war between uh, the UK and, and EU. What do you see as the outcome of the uh, the negotiations that are happening now? And what are your hopes for uh, UK-Dutch relations in the Brexit era, especially bearing in mind that uh, the United Kingdom and and uh, the Netherlands are very close allies. They've been very strong allies for hundreds of years. Uh, and uh, what what are your uh, hopes for uh, uh, UK Dutch relations in the Brexit era? Well, as you know, we we cer certainly didn't ask for the divorce, and we still love the UK. But of course, I respect the outcome of um, of, of the referendum. Um, my my sincere hope is that, that we will reach an agreement in, in the few time that's, that's left before the 1st of January um, on, on as broad um, scale of issues possible. Um, because of course there is this intensive trade uh, relationship and I really don't know how the, the Brits can eat their cucumber and tomato sandwiches with, without our cucumbers and tomatoes. But apart from the practical issues, um, the, the EU, the common uh, regulations with regard to, for instance, data exchange or um, sharing information about crime, also involving terrorist crime, um, has um, uh, much larger implications than only the economic side. And, and we shouldn't dispute about the fact that, that we need to maintain this cooperation. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm I want to remain hopeful that we will use the, the, the few weeks left to us to preserve um, an, as, as intensive cooperation as, as, as possible, because I also realize that this co cooperation is important in the way we react to the threats, you rightly mentioned, Russia, China, economic cooperation, 
security cooperation are, are essential both for the UK and the Netherlands and Europe in order to stand strong towards those threats. Please tell the same to our UK friends from the US. Thank, thank you very much, Foreign Minister. And uh, we have time actually now for a, a final uh, question with regard to uh, US and EU trade. Uh, and uh, at present, uh, the, the United Kingdom is, is engaged in uh, very uh, detailed negotiations with, uh, with Washington over a, a US-UK free trade deal. Uh, the negotiations between Brussels and, and Washington over a transatlantic trade investment partnership or TTIP a few years back uh, did not succeed in securing a trade agreement between the US and the European Union. Do you believe the US and EU will succeed in negotiating and implementing a trade deal in the next few years? And, and what needs to be done on both sides uh, to secure a transatlantic uh, trade agreement? Um, although free trade agreements um, have become less unvoked than they used to be, I, I am still a staunch supporter of free trade agreements. Um, I'm convinced that the fact that um, a relatively small country like Netherlands, 15 million people on, on an area, I think something less than Long Island, uh, that, that we have become so successful is that we have always believed free trade is good for us, that the competition gets out the best of us. And of course, I, I, sh I should not have to convince any U.S. citizen that, that the country with, with your great strengths will also always benefit from, from free trade. And that uh, it will make us stronger together in the world if we, if we can show that we can agree about free trade agreements. And I know how difficult it is that, that we both have farmers to convince, that we have consumers to convince. But it, it is so much part of, again, our common heritage that we believe in, in free trade and the benefits of it to all of us, that there again, I, I really want to, to continue to push my, my European colleagues to engage with the US and keep on working on free trade agreements. Thank you, Foreign Minister. And, and I, I think your message is absolutely right that you know free trade is such a, a powerful force for prosperity and, and freedom on the world stage. And it's in the interests of the United States and our European allies to work together in advancing free trade, free trade across across the world, and also advancing, of course, uh, economic freedom. Uh, and economic freedom is a is a tremendous driver for uh, for uh, economic uh, development and uh, and prosperity. And uh, I'd really like to thank you very much, uh, Foreign Minister Steflot, for sharing your insights today on transatlantic uh, cooperation in the COVID nineteen era and beyond. And uh, I'd like to also thank our audience for joining us for this very important uh, conversation. And I very much hope that we can welcome you, Foreign Minister, here in person at some stage uh, as we move out of, of the COVID-19 era, hopefully in the in the coming months. Uh, and, uh, and a big thank you to everybody for joining us today. Uh, and I'd also like to mention that immediately following this event, uh, everyone will receive a survey that we hope you'll com complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public uh, square. Uh, we hope to see everyone at our future events, which can be found at heritage.org slash events. Uh, thank you to everybody for joining us today. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you.